The sermon text from today is from Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1441. Listen as I read God's word. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, Joshua of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the whole people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Here ends the reading. All right, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, uh, my name is Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here. Go ahead and grab your own Bible or one of those in the pew if you haven't turned to Haggai chapter one already. I told everyone last week that Haggai is a bit of a challenging book, and I want us to be able to sip and savor it over the next uh, four more weeks that we have of this series, and I'm gonna be making some references to the text, so go ahead and open up there. Um, and uh, I don't think the kids have been dismissed. If they haven't been dismissed yet, then they, they have, okay. Sorry, I ran out to the restroom during that time. So, great, perfect. Let's pray, <laughs> and then we will dive into Haggai here. Lord, we come to you this morning, a people in need. We need to hear from you and to know you. Lord, as we hear your word preached this morning, would you set yourself apart as holy in our hearts? And may we see ourselves as those who have been set apart by Christ's work and his work alone. We pray all this in his mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, I'm gonna start out with another question this morning. Last week, we asked one penetrating question. This week, I wanna ask this. What would you do if you knew that you couldn't fail. What would you do if you knew that you couldn't fail? Would that change the way that you looked at the world, the way that you interacted with it? Would that cause you to try things that maybe you hesitated to try in the past for fear of failure? Would that inability to fail change the way that you interacted with people? What kind of person might you become if you knew that all you could do is succeed. Now we all know that failure is a part of life, right? And oftentimes the Lord uses our failures. He uses them to shape us, to mold us, to sanctify us into the people that he desires us to be. Sometimes I believe that in God's good plans and purposes, it is actually his intention that we fail and that we learn from those things. But this is the reality of the world that we live in. And sometimes I believe this fear of failure can have a, a real impact on the way that we actually go through life. And this makes sense because there's a, a real tangible, visceral need in many of us to succeed at the end of the day. And this is actually a good desire. It's this desire that's built into us that says, I want to be approved of. And oftentimes we seek that out in the context of community. And this reflects the idea that we, we were made to be accepted and that we were ultimately made to be loved. And yet because we live in a fallen world, two things sometimes result. 
the first thing that sometimes happen, happens is this desire to be approved of goes unmet. So maybe that's with a family member who you're always trying to meet their expectations. Maybe that's with your friends where you always feel like you're trying to play catch up without any affirmation. Maybe that's with this, your boss and you're working super hard and they, they never take the time to actually encourage you for what you actually do do right. But sometimes this desire for affirmation goes unmet. Sometimes also in a broken world, our desire to succeed gets expressed in broken ways, right? Where people are willing to go to great lengths, even to the detriment of other people in order to find success. But God's people are called to do something different. We are called to live in a different way. We are called to define our identity, our our foundation, our grounding by God's love for us. And the beauty of this is that at the end of the day, this desire for success that we have, this identity of success that we have, does not need to be bound up in our own achievements, but ultimately in Christ's victory. As we come to this last section of chapter one today, we're gonna finish this chapter. As we come to it, we find a group of Judeans that are well acquainted with the idea of failure. They're well acquainted with the idea of discouragement. If you recall last week, and if you weren't here last week, I'd really encourage you to go back and kind of check out that sermon so you can get a feel for what's going on here in Haggai. But these are people that are coming off of a 70-year exile. They had a sharp realization that failure was part of their people's history. And now that they were back in the promised land, the expectations of God is maybe gonna do something great again. He is going to restore us. He's gonna set us up for success. Those expectations did not end up meeting reality. They experienced a sense of uprootedness even while they were in their own homeland. And they found that in striving to set up a life for themselves, their efforts were being frustrated. It was not going the way that they had planned. And amidst all of this, God confronts them from the top down, from the leaders all the way down to the lay people. And he tells them that they still have not finished this temple that has been standing there left to waste away for the past 15 years. And so what we saw is that in fact, their frustrations that they were having was actually a form of God's discipline upon them. And he was telling them that if they want to experience his covenant blessings, this temple has to get done. And so the question that we ended last week was this. Are they going to obey the Lord? Are they actually going to step up and finally build the temple? And today we're going to kind of answer that question at least in part. But I think we need to realize that this is a really big moment for them. This is a huge moment in the history of God's people where they have an opportunity to do something that their ancestors did not do. They have an opportunity to do something that could drastically change this generation of Israelites. They have an opportunity to find God's approval in rebuilding this temple, and yet it's a project that they find very quickly they cannot do alone. The circumstances around them do not permit them to do it alone. They need some sort of intervention. And the beauty of today's text that we see is that just like us, they are not alone. They come to find that God is with them, and that makes all the difference. And so where I want us to focus in today, the thrust of today's text is going to be this, that the Lord calls us to obedience fueled by his power. 
The Lord calls us to obedience fueled by his power. And what we find is that that obedience starts with a change of heart. So let's start there. These people have a heart change. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people. So all the way from the very top of the food chain, all the way to the very bottom of the people there, they obeyed the voice of the Lord and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord, their God, had sent him and the people feared the Lord. So if you remember last week, this is a really big contrast to the way that the people had been acting. We see that they finally come to their senses. They, they hear Haggai's message and they obey. Now, the NIV translates this word as obey. The English Standard Version does it too. I'm not sure what the NASB does, but, but the Hebrew word is a word that some of you, if you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, might be familiar with. It's the word shema. They shema. This is the difference between hearing and actually listening. Now, I'm going to be transparent for a minute. This is going to be uh, confessions of one of your pastors. There are moments in my life where I'm talking to Holly, and I know I'm not alone in this, so no one can judge this. There's moments where I'm having a conversation with Holly, and she's talking to me, and I'm kind of half listening. And I'm not really paying attention as I should. And she knows this about me, and so she, she knows these cues that I have. She knows there's certain things that I do where I'm, I, certain sounds I make or affirmations that I give where I'm really not paying attention as I should. And so she catches me sometimes and she'll ask me, are, are, are you listening to me, right? And, and my answer to her oftentimes is that I hear what she's saying. I hear what she's saying. And these are two different things. And once she finds out that I, I, she's, I'm only being, or she's only being heard, I'm, I'm in trouble, right? This is how you end up in the doghouse, guys, okay? Because I might be processing her words, but the reality is, is I'm not actually taking what she is saying to heart. I'm not actually shamaing what is going on. And it's a very similar thing that has been playing out for these Israelites here. Throughout their history, their ancestors have often heard what God has said, but they haven't always listened. They haven't always taken it to heart. And most recently, that led to some pretty practical consequences for them. It wasn't working out as they had expected. So they found that in trying to establish themselves uh, on their own, they were actually effectively swimming against the current of what God wanted to do for them. Now, growing up in Florida, one of the great and wonderful privileges that I had in living there was not only the hot weather, but that I got to experience these things that are called hurricanes. Okay, and my family and I moved from Pennsylvania to Florida in, in 2004. And if you remember 2004, that was actually when Hurricane Charlie came through. And when we got down there, we had found that the hurricane actually ripped the top uh, off of our moving truck and like destroyed like 75 plus percent of all of the things that we owned. And so we got a you know, nice insurance check and we got to kind of start over. But the point was this, hurricanes are no joke, okay? But one of the things that I find uniquely entertaining and honestly sometimes comical when hurricanes roll around is if you still have power, you turn on the TV, you go to look at the news, and you see pictures like this, right? You see these meteorologists who are out there, and they are trying to report on this hurricane while effectively being raptured in the moment, right? And I think what we need to understand is this. That before we get to today's text, that is these people, right? They are putting their needs over God's will, and they are fighting a losing battle. 
They are the reporter who is in the hurricane, we might say, of God's discipline. And yet there is a different thing going on now. Today they finally listen. They have a different resulting posture. It says they fear the Lord. So they've gone from I am in charge to he's God and I am not and therefore I have to do something different. They finally see God for who he is. I think one of the things that we need to learn is this, that how we view God can really impact the way that we walk with him. How we view God can really impact the way that we walk with him. And this happens on a number of levels and a number of different ways. One of the ways this impacts us is on the level of obedience, that how we view God impacts how we're willing to obey him. So if we view God as impotent and weak, we're gonna be pretty hesitant to step into what he wants us to step into because we might not believe that he's powerful enough to see us through the circumstances. If we believe that he is only angry and wrathful all the time without being merciful, you might be hesitant to obey him. Because if you step out in faith and you fail, you might only experience his wrath. But our view of God not only impacts our obedience, but it also impacts how we relate to him on a relationship level. And by extension, how we relate to those around us then. So if we forget that God is wholly other, that he is perfect in every way, it gets pretty easy for us to start comparing ourselves to him. It gets pretty easy to get to this point where we can almost develop a sense of arrogance, which, which can impact the relationships that we have around us. I think that although many of us know the Bible really well, there's this thing that happens among God's people where we develop what I call theological amnesia. And that's where we forget who God is in the midst of our circumstances. And what we need to know is that can have a drastic impact on the way that we live our life. So I wanna reiterate this again for us to remember that our view of God impacts the way that we relate to him and obey him. And what we observed in this nation prior to today's text is that they had, in one sense, theological amnesia. And that was impacting their life. That in trying to get things going, they practically forgot who God was. And that led to issues of identity in themselves, where they, they, they didn't see themselves as a people who were ultimately under God. But it led to issues of obedience, too, where they weren't prioritizing the building of the temple as they should have. But today is something different. There is a change of posturing where they fear the Lord. If you're familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, the, the Old Testament, then you know fear of the Lord is a, a significant theme all throughout that, that kind of denotes this, this right response to relationship with God. And what we see with them is this happens among them and things begin to line up as they should. Their right theology leads to a right identity where they see who they are with regard to God and they place themselves under his rule. And their right theology leads to new steps of obedience where they understand where they must do. They understand that this posture of fearing the Lord, this heart change must now be expressed in practice. And what we'll see is that it is expressed as these people are now motivated to serve. Look at this last section here, these last few verses. It says, Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave his message of the Lord to the people. I'm with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant. Again, the whole people are being moved here. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So this is 23 days later from what we read last week. 
Now, as we look at this, I think there's actually a little bit of irony if, if you look very carefully at what's going on in the text. Because from last week, we remember that they were rebelling against building the temple, right? In, fe- in effect, they were rebelling against God's presence. But look what happens in verse 13. It's actually the promise of God's presence that is the thing that motivates them now. And as their desires and God's desires line up, they learn something extremely, extremely important for them and abundantly important for us. It's that they are not in this by themselves. And this is important for them especially because these are a people who are scarred by exile. They had just experienced within the past 20 years of their lives some of the most severe discipline that they could possibly imagine from the Lord where they are taken away from their homeland, they watch their city burn, and they are completely disjointed from their whole way of life. And some of them, as they're away, and even as they're coming back, are wondering, what is God's future for our nation? Has he effectively abandoned us? And then they get back, and things were not immediately better, right? They're worried about the king finding out about them building the temple. They have pushback from the people around them. And they feel the weight of, now we have to get all of these resources together, and now we actually have to build this thing up. There's a whole building project. But here, they are no longer under God's punishment. As they turn to him in repentance, they find that he is with them and that he is helping them. And this is the message that puts wind in their sails. Imagine the feeling of this, where they're trying so hard to set up their life. They're trying so hard to to make a name for themselves. They're trying so hard to provide for their families, and they find that things are not working because they have been disregarding the one who desires to ultimately provide for them. And the prophet says, God is displeased with you. And you have this oh no moment and you have this call to repentance and you come to God and you hope that he's going to forgive you and in your great joy, you find now that God is merciful. And not only is he willing to overlook your sin, but now he says, I have a job for you. I want to empower you. I am calling you to something far beyond what you deserve. What an encouraging place to be. What an encouraging thing to hear when God says, I am with you. What we see is there's this call and response that goes on here between God and his people. I call it this kind of dance of obedience where he calls them to repentance and they submit to him and they fear him rightly. And this leads to him encouraging them, saying that he's backing their efforts. And this is the means that the spirit uses to stir them to finally begin rebuilding the temple. This is God empowering his people to accomplish his purposes. And if we wanna go even deeper, this is actually signaled in the Hebrew text. There's actually a wordplay that's really interesting in here where we see that all of these efforts are connected. Where Haggai, the, the, the messenger, the malach, he gives the people a message, a, a malakut, and then we find that they are stirred to go and work, which is the word malakut. It's all connected. And we see that it is all initiated by God saying, you guys need to change. You guys need to turn to me. And the point is this, that the same kind of dance of obedience that God desires for them is the same thing that he calls us into as well. And I need you to hear this, that your obedience to God is not without his empowerment, just like it's not here. And there is even a significant difference between what we see going on here and what is going on in your lives presently, because they temporarily had the spirit moving 
about. They temporarily had the Spirit doing a work in them, helping them to rebuild this temple. And look what happened. The temple got rebuilt, which ends up being Herod's temple, which ends up being the very temple that Jesus walks into about 500 years later. But we, we have the Spirit consistently dwelling in us, building up this new covenant temple that we call the people of God, that we call the church. We have to recognize that they are having a foretaste of what we now experience in full. So if we look at this and we say, man, this is a pretty good moment for them, if we view this as a good thing, how much more encouraged should we be by what God is doing among us even now? That even in our most ordinary moments, the Spirit is making us holy. He is making us into the image of Jesus. That even as you're hearing God's word preached in this moment, the Spirit is doing something, even if we don't know what it is. Sometimes I think that we live under this crushing weight, I'll say, that, that God is, is eternally disappointed in us that we can never live up to his expectations, that he is always angry and upset with us that we have failed, that we have stumbled over the same sin again, that we are still experiencing the consequences of some foolish decision that we made years ago. And I want to say something very clearly, that in one sense, we need to grapple with the fact that God is displeased. He is displeased because he is perfectly holy, and his standard is perfection. And in our broken and sinful state, none of us is worthy to approach him. And he has given us his law, which we have rejected and thereby forfeited our relationship with him. And the scriptures tell us that this is not something that has just happened to us. This is something that we would rather do. This is something where we do not care for God. And given the choice, we would rather define obedience according to our standard. We would rather define our own identity. That just like these Israelites, without God initiating some sort of change and calling us to repentance, we would sail off into disaster. And despite the fact that this freeing ourselves from God feels like indeed freedom, the scriptures tell us that that is the epitome of slavery where we are enslaving ourselves to the ex expectations of ourselves and others, where we're submitting to things and people that do not care for us as God does. And so is God displeased with this? Is God angry with this and upset with this rebellion? You bet he is, and rightfully so. We would be upset if this was happening to our own child. But the thing is this, that is not the complete story that the scriptures tell us. The scriptures tell us that although God is perfectly just and will make everything right and will execute his judgment at the end, he is also abundantly merciful. And that just as God called these Israelites to something greater in his power, so too he calls us to something greater in Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see the perfect model of a life well-lived. In Jesus, we see a life that was not trying to do it on his own, in his own selfishness, but was in complete submission and obedience to God the Father. And he wasn't simply striving in his own power as these Israelites did early in chapter one, but he was in complete submission to the empowerment of God the Spirit. In Jesus, there's God taking on flesh to assure that we would not be those who God is disappointed in, but so that at the end of the day, through faith in Jesus, we could stand before God as those who are approved. Now that doesn't mean that God approves, obviously, of everything that we do. 
but it does mean that in Christ, we stand before a holy God righteous, not because God approves of us, but because he approves of everything about the Son. You see, this is the beauty of the gospel, guys, that Christ gave his perfect life for ours, that his obedience was eternally credited to our account. And when he rises three days later after being crucified on a cross, here's what we came to find out. We came to find out that he was going to the Father to intercede for us forever so that even in our moments where we stumble, even in our moments of disobedience, we can always find forgiveness. And we also found that when he goes to the Father, he says, it's necessary that I go that I might send you my spirit, the same spirit who empowers us to obedience and holiness. We see that Jesus was obedient to the point of death so that you and I could live the empowered life, not just the forgiven life, not just the obedient life, but the empowered life. Just as God tells these people here that he's with them, and this is a significant thing for them, I want us to remember what Jesus says right before he ascends. He says, I have all authority, so go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey me, and behold, I am with you. Church, hear this. God is with us. God is for us. He is for you succeeding. Now, not success in the way that maybe the world would define it, but he is for you persevering to the end so that you would stand before him blameless. We have found approval before a good God because of Jesus, and now we're called to reflect that in our life, and in the same way that this is a game changer for them, that they have the Spirit, this changes everything for us now that the Spirit indwells us. I said last week that every week uh, in the book of Haggai, we're, I'm going to ask you to consider something as you come to communion. Last week, we considered the, the nearness of God, but here's what I want us to reflect on as we come to the table this morning. I want us to think about the nature of God who he is. Remember, who he is impacts the way that we respond to him. I want us to ask, do we have a right view of God? Have we been seeing him as too small? Have we been seeing him as lacking mercy and love for us? Have we been making God into who we desire him to be instead of who he is? And I think at times we're all guilty of this. So I'm gonna call us to repentance I want to call us to a place where we see God as the scriptures communicate him. And with hearts set upon our God, I want to ask us, are we called to relate to him in a different way? Maybe are you called to revere him as, as you see him in all of his glory? Are you called to submit to him in a new way? Are you called to maybe boldly approach him, seeing that he deeply desires a relationship with you? Maybe you're called to take a new step of obedience and step into the abundant life that God has for you. So ask, is he calling me to step out in faith, trusting in who he is and maybe a new way? But either way, who God is demands a response of us. So I want us to take the time to consider who he is. And as we come to the table, think about how he might ask us to respond, not just today, but in the weeks and months and years to come. Let's take a minute to reflect on this and we'll pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we've done and by the things that we have left undone. Lord, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, our mind, our strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
Lord, it's so easy for us to set up idols in our hearts of who we think you are or who we want you to be instead of you being who you truly are and us responding to you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we desire to see you rightly, so we pray that you would show us your glory. Lord, we look to Jesus as, as the God-man, God, you who've taken on flesh for us. We look to him as our example, the, the very image of you, Lord. Lord, we look to him and we desire to follow him so that we might be the people that you desire us to be. So Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive what we have been? Would you help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways all to the glory of your name. Amen.